Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to A Million Other Choices. As always, I am your host, Kim. The story I am bringing you today is an interesting one, but unfortunately the background information I have had to come from a made-for-TV movie from 1995, and you know how that goes, sometimes liberties are taken with stuff. So I've done my best to weed through what I think is just drama for effect and what is fact and cross-reference with actual court stuff. I feel fairly confident that what I'm going to tell you is truthful. And FYI, if you are interested, the movie is called Murder Most Likely and I have watched it, thereby saving you two hours of your life that you would never get back. I'm no movie critic, but if you like early 1990s Canadian made-for-TV dramas, it's exactly what you would expect from that genre. It does really irritate me when I research a case that there is way more background information on the killer than the victims. I think that background information is so important and I like to know even just little tidbits about the person that helps me understand their choices. But alas, I don't have that today, but we're going to muddle through. This is the murder of Jeanette Kelly. But to talk even the bit I know about Jeanette, we first have to talk about Patrick Kelly, who became her husband. Patrick was born in Ontario in 1949, but grew up in BC. As a young adult, he moved back to Ontario and settled in Toronto, where he joined the RCMP in 1971, which is kind of like Canada's version of a cross between the FBI and state troopers. In rural areas and smaller towns, they act as the police force, but they are funded by the federal government, so they also do federal and major investigations like cybersecurity, tracking down online predators, and other stuff. And they have an undercover drug squad that works tracking international drug shipments. So Patrick, from the beginning of his career, showed a lot of potential for working undercover. He was calm under pressure and could be charming and a really good actor. He also didn't have any family at that time, so was pretty fearless So he eventually went undercover in 1975, posing as an international drug smuggler of heroin and cocaine. 
Now, I'm not sure if he was always a douche canoe or if he just grew into one, but he definitely was one. Very early on, he decided that being a dirty cop was more lucrative than his day job, so he started to covertly carry large sums of cash out of South America on behalf of wealthy individuals and the Roman Catholic Church. He said later, quote, if they wanted to move their assets, I was available for 20% of the asset, end quote, but insists that, quote, I did not join the other side. These were legitimate folks who wanted to flee South America for one reason or another, end quote. Sometime, either just before or just after he went undercover, he went on vacation in Mexico and met a lovely French woman named Jeanette. She was French-French, not French-Canadian, and lived in France at the time. But it was a whirlwind romance, and they were quite smitten with each other, so it didn't take long for Jeanette to pack up and move to Toronto to to be with Patrick. And they were soon married. According to this made-for-TV movie, Jeanette's mom wasn't too happy and said that there was something about Patrick that she didn't like from the beginning. Like he was just too smooth, too good to be true, and in the movie, the actress that played her said there was a lie in him. Now, I don't know if her mom actually said those words at any time, but it's a great line. When you get that off feeling about someone, there's a lie in them. I like that. And that was Patrick. But Jeanette didn't really get that vibe, and she remained deeply in love with Patrick, and she got a job at Canadian Airlines as a reservation agent. Now, undercover work in the 70s paid about $21,000 a year, I googled the inflation conversion on that, and it's about 110000 a year in 2022, which seems exorbitant to me in an increase, but I think Cal- the city of Calgary police, like regular street cops, make about $80,000 a year, so not off base, which sounds like a lot of money, especially if you're not in Canada, but the average salary in Canada is $72,000 a year, and I'm sure there are some of you thinking, what, I make way less than that, and others are wondering how someone lives off that, It's just an average. My point is, he was doing okay, but not wealthy. So they were renting a place in the city, and they eventually bought a beautiful stately house in the suburbs, probably from dirty money. And when I say dirty money, I'm talking mob stuff. Money laundering and making deliveries for the cartel. Like dirty, filthy money. And Jeanette didn't ask a lot of questions about finances. She trusted Patrick that his work covered their expenses, and she's from France, so she wouldn't be expected to know the standard of living versus the salary thing here. One of the things they loved was collecting antiques with this dirty money, and I think some of the other RCMP members were starting to wonder about Patrick, how he could afford the lifestyle he was living on his salary. RCMP is union, so its salary ranges. It's not like a private company where one person can negotiate a salary way off base from somebody else's. He's also an arrogant douche canoe, so I don't think he was particularly well regarded in the force either. However, he did have these two friends that worked undercover with him, John Hasty, who was married to Don Tabor, another cop. Not a lot is said of Patrick's friendship with John, but Don and Patrick were close and she was also friends with Jeanette. Now we're going to come back to Don later because she's kind of a strange cookie and has a lot to do with some stuff that comes later. Rumors were starting to run rampant about Patrick's income sources and rather than lay low, Patrick lived a lifestyle well out of reach of most undercover cops. He drove a silver Porsche and went on lavish vacations and bought all these expensive antiques. It would be revealed later that Patrick had 20 different credit cards and six bank accounts to keep track of all his illicit funds. 
but country living was starting to wear on the couple who both felt more alive in the city. So Patrick put their home up for sale and purchased a very expensive condo on the 17th floor of the Palace Pier high-rise in Etobicoke, a suburb of Toronto which overlooked Lake Ontario to the front and the Humber River to the east. It's still standing on Lakefront Drive and is built in this like V shape. But rather than sell, the house in the suburbs caught fire and burned to the ground. Naturally, the timing didn't look too good. The house wasn't selling, and this guy that a number of people suspect is on the take tries to collect the insurance money when the house burns down. So the OPP, or Ontario Provincial Police, launched an investigation into the fire, which pissed Patrick off. Imagine him, of all people, being questioned about his honesty. Unfortunately, they weren't able to prove that he started the fire himself, despite finding a gas can in the living room of his house. He even took a polygraph test and passed, so they had no choice but to pay out the insurance claim. But they continued an internal investigation, and rather than face being questioned and looked into, he resigned and the case against him was dropped. But having a husband with an investigation hanging over him can put a bit of a strain on a marriage, as did his numerous affairs, which he had many, many, many of. Some I'm sure Jeanette found out about, but many went under her radar, including a quasi-affair with Don Tabor, the strange cookie I mentioned earlier. The reason why I say she's strange is because, well, she is. She was married, but sometimes sleeping with Patrick, but not serious, but maybe serious, but still friends with Jeanette. And about her relationship with Patrick, the story kept changing. Sometimes it was just a fling, and sometimes she said that they had planned on leaving the country together. But she was also aware that Patrick had met a new woman, Jan Bradley, who he was planning on flying to Hawaii with at the beginning of April 1981, which would conveniently coincide with when Jeanette would be away in Italy for a language course of some sort. She was scheduled to leave on the afternoon of March 29th. But regardless of all this, according to Patrick, and we all know a husband would never lie about such a thing, Jeanette was packing for her trip on the morning of March 29th, just doing her thing, and they had both been complaining about a rattling noise that had been coming from the balcony. Some of the flashing on the floor of the balcony above them was loose and it was annoying. So while Patrick was in the kitchen making himself some tea, she grabbed a kitchen stool and went out to the balcony to fix it. This was about an hour before she was supposed to leave for her flight. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't normally start any home improvement projects just before I leave for the airport. But maybe Jeanette was more of a go-getter than I am. Seconds later, Patrick heard Jeanette scream and he ran out onto the balcony. In his own words, he says, quote, As I rounded the corner, I saw Jeanette falling backward. I ran to the edge of the balcony in an attempt to save her. I actually had my hands on her, but by that time she was already moving out and down, end quote. Patrick raced either by elevator or the stairs to the 17th floor. It's interesting no one says which. I would think the stairs. I believe if I was in a panic, I would instinctively take the stairs, not wanting to push the button and wait for an elevator. And what if people want to get off or something? Anyways, total sidetrack. Regardless, he could have got there by teleportation. It wouldn't have been in time to save Jeanette. Now, witnesses say that Patrick was acting as expected, shaken, crying, and completely in shock but the police initially just aren't buying it. As Detective Sweet says in season two, it's just little things and a feeling. For one, why is she using a stool to fix the balcony an hour before her flight? 
It's not completely impossible, but it's odd. Then Patrick says everything was great in their relationship, but they found a handwritten 17-page separation agreement drawn up, which Patrick explained away as just something they were contemplating a while ago, but things are cool now. Then the distance her body fell from the building didn't line up with a stumble and a fall, more like a push. And they tried timing how long it would take to get from the kitchen to the balcony and was 3.5 seconds. She would have been near the ground by then, but he says he had his hands on her before she fell. And there are the insurance policies. Patrick stood to receive a total of $280,000 in insurance money from an accidental death. Also, the autopsy revealed a few odd facts. She had a cut on the inside of her upper lip and what looked like bruises on her face despite landing face up, and apparently her heart had stopped beating before she landed. It was deduced because there was no active bleeding from her head injury. The medical examiner wrote in his report that the injury to the head was actually from blunt force trauma before the fall and possibly from a fist. And then, a couple of days after Jeanette's death, police got a call from that strange cookie, Don Tabor, telling them to look into Patrick. She had a feeling he had killed her. No specific reason given, just a feeling. But around that time, they weren't able to sit down with Patrick because, remember that secret trip to Hawaii he had planned with his new squeeze, Jan Bradley, just after Jeanette was to leave for Italy? Yeah, he still went on that vacation. But they didn't have enough to arrest Patrick at the time, which was a bit odd, and we'll get to that later, because nothing more substantial than the circumstantial evidence they have comes out. So Patrick married his side girl, Jan, and they moved to France, and Dawn moved back to Maine, where she was originally from, and that was kind of it for about two years. Then, for some odd reason, Dawn Tabor contacted the police in Toronto and invited them to New Hampshire for something she wanted to tell them in February of 1983. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Dawn told them that she was actually at the apartment on the day and the exact time that Jeanette fell from the building. Now, why Dawn never faced any charges for this original omission reeks of a side deal reached with investigators of immunity in exchange for her testimony, because she revealed that Patrick had actually conspired with her that they were going to leave the country together and go to France, which is exactly what he did, but with Jan and not her. Now, not necessarily that he was going to kill Jeanette to accomplish that, but in a, eh, don't worry about her, I'll take care of it kind of thing. Patrick was short on money. All his dirty work behind the blue badge wasn't exactly paying as well as it had before because he was being investigated for all the dirty stuff and one thing the cartel knows is that people sniffing around you makes you more of a liability than you are worth to them. So these deliveries he was doing were starting to dry up. She says that on the day of Jeanette's murder, she arrived at their apartment around 12.30, which was two and a half hours before she died. She wanted to make up with Jeanette over something that they had recently quarreled over, which was kind of odd as well, because she also says that she was there to take Jeanette to the airport. 
So which was it, Dawn? She says that she was in the den, which kind of has a view of the other areas of the apartment. It's a high rise facing the water. So lots of huge open windows and the apartment was built in this weird V shape. Anyways, she overheard an, an argument between the couple. She says that Jeanette was egging Patrick on because she was refusing to give Patrick a divorce. Now I would question her story at this point. Why was she really there and why in the den? If let's say you had a recent squabble with a close friend and was still supposed to take her to the airport. Yes, I would arrive a few minutes earlier than I needed to, to do the sorry, I was a bitch thing. Get your stuff. Let's go. We'll talk more on the way. Now I'm not arriving two and a half hours earlier and going and sitting in the den while her and her husband have an argument. And let's say she arrived and the argument started. I can totally see if you're at your friends and they start bickering. It's awkward and I would probably move to a different room to give them some privacy. But if I heard the word divorce during the argument, I'm pretty sure I would quietly excuse myself and wait in the hall or something. I mean, that's not a you left your shoes scattered by the door kind of squabble. It's obviously a pretty big fight, and I'm not sticking around unless I'm concerned about violence. And maybe that's why she stuck around, but she never mentioned anything about that. Nor did she ever mention that she was there to the police until two years later. She testified that, quote, I heard a very, very loud scream. Then I heard the sound of somebody hitting somebody, then nothing. I walked out to see what was going on. Jeanette was on the floor and Patrick was bending over her, picking her up. He took Jeanette to the balcony and dropped her over the edge. He then told her to take the service elevator and she got the hell out of Dodge. Now, I, for one, would be flying out of the building, screaming to the police at that point, but not Dawn. She stayed completely off the radar of the investigation until she revealed her secret. And I think, not to sound too cynical, but to me it sounds like she was probably more pissed that Patrick had chosen to go on that trip to Hawaii with Jan and not her, and when she found out that they had moved to France and Jan was living the life that he had promised to her, she decided, screw you, I'm going to tell everyone what you did. But that's my opinion, not fact. So when Patrick made the error of vacationing in Ontario, he was arrested and tried for first-degree murder. He was convicted after about 13 hours of deliberation and mostly based on Dawn's testimony, and he was given a life sentence with no parole eligibility for 25 years. When he was convicted, of course he maintained his innocence and still does to this day, and he said, quote, now I know how Donald Marshall felt, end quote. Who the heck is Donald Marshall, you ask? He was an Indigenous man in Nova Scotia who was convicted of second-degree murder and served 11 years for the murder of 17-year-old Sandy Seal in 1971, based solely on the fact that he was known to the police as someone who might do something like that. He was acquitted in 1983 when a witness came forward, and in the end, Roy Ebsary was convicted for her murder of manslaughter. Donald Marshall died in 2009 from complications from a lung transplant that he received in 2003. So yeah, I can totally see the parallels, Kim says sarcastically. A writer named Michael Harris, who wrote the book Justice Denied about Donald Marshall's experience, became someone that Patrick thought might believe him. So in 1986, he reached out to him, hoping he would look into his conviction. And he did. He found Don Tabor and asked her what happened that day, and she repeated what she had said at the trial and to the investigators two years after the murder. Then suddenly, a few months later, she called him, once again, strange cookie that she is, told Michael Harris, yeah, I lied. 
At that time, she said that, yes, she was there and she overheard the argument and all that actually happened, but she didn't actually see Patrick throw her over the balcony. In her third affidavit, she said, quote, I now know I did not see Patrick Kelly drop his wife off their balcony. I now know that it was a lie induced through a process of pressure and fear. Pressure, she says, as a result of the police investigation. But that's a bit strange since she wasn't even on their radar until she herself came forward with the story about him throwing her up from the balcony. But she says now that she was involuntarily hypnotized, according to the Buffalo News in the U.S., But this little change to her story, Patrick's lawyers hoped might be enough to get him a new trial. So they prepared their appeal paperwork under Section 690 of the Criminal Code, which is used for convicted people who have exhausted all other routes of appeal. Section 690 is what was used to overturn David Milgard's conviction in 1992. Now, for all it's worth, Patrick himself had always denied that Don was even there that day at all. A whole lot of legal mumbo-jumbo happened that I won't bore you with, But in April 2001, the Supreme Court of Canada rejected his appeal for a new trial. Basically, they said that they didn't have any legal reason to overturn the Ontario Court of Appeals' denial of a new trial based on new evidence, as it wasn't really new evidence, just a partial recantation of a witness's story, which I don't think anyone really bought, that she actually saw him drop her from the balcony anyways. The fact is, he had means, motive, and was convicted based on the fact that even if no one was there to see it, his story didn't add up. He was moved to the Williamshead Institution. Then in 1994, he decided to sue Correctional Services Canada for $730,000 because he feels that he should have been moved earlier away from Toronto because of his undercover work. He claims that two days after being housed in Toronto, he was attacked and then refused a transfer. He was also told he could either live in virtual confinement for 23 and a half hours a day or be part of the general population. That case was heard and a decision made, but he didn't get anywhere with it. He was given day parole in 2003, but it was revoked a year later when he didn't report his financial dealings and was accused of defrauding his employer of $40,000. Then in May 2010, he got full parole after 26 years. He had a few conditions, but one of the big ones was to report any new relationships with women to his parole officer. But in 2012, it was revoked when he was found to be having intimate relations with three different women. He says it was because he developed a drinking problem after a breakup with one of the women that he did report having a relationship with. The parole board stated in their decision, quote, your recent behavior on full parole compares with a previous pattern of criminal behavior Given your deceit, relationship dishonesty, and the potential for financial stress, in all these circumstances, the board finds your risk elevated to an undue level, end quote. And in June 2014, he was again granted full parole under the conditions that he attend AA meetings, stay away from alcohol, and attend counseling, and again report any intimate relationships to his parole officer. As far as I know, he was living in BC somewhere, and probably sleeping with a number of women, hopefully in bedrooms on the ground floor. And that was the murder of Jeanette Kelly. I will be back again next week with another case. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, do all that etc. etc. stuff. And as always, thank you so much for listening.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.